Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Sunday, August the 14th, 2022. It is currently 2.52 p.m. Central Time. I don't know why I was getting ready to say it's 2021. I, I don't, did, did I forget which year it was? Good afternoon, everyone. It is Sunday, August the 14th, 2022. It is currently 2.52 p.m. I think it maybe because it said 2.51. I don't know. But welcome, everyone. It's Sunday afternoon. I hope you've had a great Lord's Day. Hopefully, you're at Sunday school. Hopefully, you're at the Sunday morning worship service. And hopefully, you left spiritually fed. Hopefully, you left and you're like, wow, that was a spiritual meal. And maybe now you're just kind of relaxing on this Sunday afternoon. And I'm here to try to give you a, well, a little bit more spiritual food. And then, I don't know if your church has a Sunday evening service, but if you'd like to tune in at 6 p.m., we'll be streaming live from Victory Baptist Church as we continue our work on Mark chapter 2, verse 26. We spent two hours this morning on that verse, trying to figure it out, and all of the controversies and all the difficulties surrounding it. And that makes, I think, what, uh, six, six hours of work on Mark 2, 26. And then tonight should make it seven hours. I don't know if we'll finish everything tonight. No, I don't think we can. So I, I think we'll probably end up doing eight or nine hours on Mark chapter 2, verse 26. So please listen to that series. I think you'll find it beneficial. But it's Sunday afternoon. What can I do for you? Well, I know what I can do for you. I can point you to a book. Wait, I know what I could do. We could give some copies of the book away. So we're going to give some, uh, we'll give away some copies of the book that we're going to be talking about. I can tell you about the book. We're going to listen to a part of a podcast episode. And um, it's, well, it all deals with biblical prophecy. It all deals with eschatology. It always, it, it, it all deals with things related to the end times. So it should be a good, maybe hour of your time. So just sit back, relax. Let's dig in. Now, all of you know, most of you know that I love podcasts. Oh, do I love podcasts. I'm looking at my iPad right now. I think I have every podcasting app that is available on planet Earth on this iPad. I just love going to one app, to the other app, to the other app, looking for different podcasts, listening, 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 and especially the world of Christian podcasting and theological podcasting and anything related to church history, all, all kinds of different podcasts. I mean, I listen to so many different kinds. And you know that I subscribe to the podcast Understanding the Times from Olive Tree Ministries. Now, that they they're, they are a radio program that airs on, I don't know, lots of hundreds and hundreds of radio stations across the country. I don't always agree with everything from Understanding the Times, but I, I, I listen to them and I subscribe to them. So uh, usually Thursday night going into Friday morning. Now, some usually it's about 2 a.m. Friday morning, 2.33 a.m., somewhere around that time that I'll reach over and grab my iPad and do a refresh on one of the podcast apps. Oh, there's the latest episode of Understanding the Times, and then I'll start listening to it. Well, on Friday morning, I started listening, and, and I immediately heard a voice that I'm very familiar with, the voice of one Dr. David Reagan. And I was like, oh, I know that voice. And how do I know that voice? From Lamb and Lion Ministries. I used to listen to Lamb and Lion Ministries every morning. Well, mon well, Monday through Friday, I should say, at about, what was it, around 6 a.m., 6.30 a.m., 7 a.m., usually when I was leaving work, because I worked overnight hours, and so they were kind of like the the last, the, the thing I listened to after I got off work, right before I went home and tried to get some sleep after working all night. Lamb and Lion Ministries. When I became a pastor at a little small church in the middle of nowhere, Texas. Oh, where, where I, I still, I'm still at that church. Um, we brought in a speaker from Lamb and Lion Ministries to speak. So, um, I, we, I, I have listened to them for a long time. Do I always agree with everything? No, but I've listened to them a long time. Well, now Lamb and Lion Ministries now has a podcast. That podcast is Christ in Prophecy, Christ in Prophecy, which comes, which is brought to you by Lamb and Lion Ministries, Christ in Prophecy. You should subscribe to it. So 
Understanding the Times have David Reagan on from Lemon Line Ministries. Lemon Line Ministries also has their own radio program and podcast called Christ in Prophecy. You may not care about all of that, but it's very relevant. So as soon as they started talking on Understanding the Time to David Reagan, I was like, okay, I wonder what he's going to be. I know he's going to be talking about something related to biblical prophecy. And then he said these words, or maybe even before he started speaking, in their introduction, I think they may have said these words or asked this question. What's the difference in a millennium and a millipede? Oh, wait, what? (laughs) That caught me off guard. What's the difference in a millennium and a millipede? I'm like, well, that's an interesting question. What's the difference between a millennium and a millipede? Who would ask that question? And then I realized, oh, that's the name of a book. Now, of course, it was like three o'clock in the morning. So, you know, I was a little confused, like, you know, what am I hearing? What's the difference in a millennium and a millipede? Wait, uh, why am I listening to this at three in the morning? Then I got, then I kind of registered. Oh, it's, it's a book written by David Reagan from Lamb and Line Ministries, who has a podcast called Christ and Prophecy. Okay. It all makes sense now, right? So I'm like, okay, let me, let me listen to a little bit of this. So I'm going to, what we're going to do is we're going to give you a little bit of information about the book. And then we're going to go not to the Understanding the Times uh, podcast. No, we're going to go to Christ and Prophecy. We're going to go back a few weeks. When they, well, talk to David Reagan from Lamb and Line Ministries, it's their podcast, about what is the difference in a millennium and a millipede. And then you'll get even more information about the book. But first, some information about the book. Are you ready? Here we go. What's the difference in a millennium and a millipede? Understanding end times viewpoints. So what's the difference in a millennium and a millipede? Understanding end time viewpoints. So the goal of this book is to help you. So obviously it's a little kind of play on words. You, some people don't even know the difference between a millennium and a millipede. They don't even know the difference. So this book is a very, very basic, very, very simplistic attempt to help you understand the different end time viewpoints. To say, here's this one, here's this one, this one. Now, clearly, they have their own perspective. Clearly, they have their own position. But instead of having a book that goes into maybe lots of detail and, 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 and arguments, this one just tries to give you, here's a very basic overview. I mean, it's only 166 pages long, so it won't require a lot of time, but it's probably good just to have so that you can maybe look at any time and go, okay, there's the preterist view. Okay. There's the post-millennial view. There's the pre-millennial view. There's the amillennial view. So, and, 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 and the most simplistic overview possible. I I think it could be beneficial. Here's a little description of the book. Again, the name of the book, What's the Difference in a Millennium and a Millipede? Understanding End Time Viewpoints by David Reagan from Lamb and Line Ministries. And of course, they have a, a, a podcast called Christ in Prophecy. Now, this is what it says. Clearing up end time confusion. Are you mystified by end time biblical prophecy? Are you confused at by all the various end time viewpoints? Have you decided that end-time prophecy is a subject appropriate only for seminary graduates? Some people may say, you know, let them all argue about that. We don't care. Would you like to get a grasp on what the Bible says about the end times and where we currently fit in to end-time chronology? Learn the difference between a millennium and a millipede. Again, the name of the book, What's the Difference in a Millennium and a Millipede? Understanding End Time Viewpoints by David Reagan. All right. Now, currently on Amazon, they have no physical copies. They are sold out. They have no physical copies. So, but they do have the digital copy for your Kindle. You can either for your Kindle or for your, um, you know, you can just download the Kindle app for your phone or tablet or computer and you can read it that way. If you would like a copy of What's the Difference in a Millennium and a Millipede by David Reagan. Of course, a digital copy. All you need to do is email me, say, I would like a copy. We're going to give away 
We'll give away a couple. I don't know, depending on how much money we have. We'll try to give away a couple because we just want, okay, one, we want to be a ministry that gives and not takes. We want, we have freely received God's grace. And so we want to freely try to minister to people as much as possible. That's why we make the curriculum free. That's why we make all of the episodes free. That's why everything we do is free. Um, and so we, if you would like a copy, the only requirement is I want you to actually read it. That would be great, right? I want you to actually use it. You may agree, you may disagree. Now, please, now listen, this is not some massive work on every detail of every end time viewpoint. This is a very basic, basic, basic introduction and overview of these different perspectives. But I think it should be at least somewhat interesting to read. Again, what the name of the book. What is the difference in a millennium and a millipede understanding end-time viewpoints? If you would like a copy, email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Simply say, I would like the book on the millennium and, and the millipede, and then I will simply take your email address, go to Amazon, click to buy the digital copy. All I have to do is place your email address there. Boom, you'll get an email. And that's it. We're not going to bother you asking you for money, not going to be telling you we need to raise $500,000 or the gospel will, will no, no longer make it around the world. None of that. We don't get, we don't send out any fundraising, anything. You'll just get a link and then you can have the book digitally. And that's the end of it. If you never talk to us again, listen to us again. If you never thank us, it doesn't matter. So we'll give away a couple of copies. I can't give away hundreds, obviously. I can't give away thousands, but we want to give away a few. And so, you email me, I'll try to uh, do my best to ensure you get a copy, all right? So there you go. There's there's the book giveaway. So far, so good. Now, let's go to the Christ and Prophecy podcast with David Reagan, the author of the book, What is the Difference in Millennium and a Millipede? And let's see what they had to say in regards to it. Now, I have not listened to this. I listened to the Understanding the Times. Um, I listened to their discussion. And they, they, they talked about the book a little bit, but they went into a lot of other things related to biblical prophecy. If you don't subscribe to Understanding the Times, you should. And you should subscribe to Christ and Prophecy Podcast. Those are two podcasts you should subscribe to. Li- subscribe to Christian Podcast, please. Subscribe to them. You should have a library of Christian podcasts that, that, that on your podcast app that's updating almost hourly. You know, you really, you really want those. And so that you can, uh, well, just constantly have spiritual food available to you. So if you, if you ever need help finding some, well, just listen to me because I typically point you to other broadcasts all the time. But are you ready? Here, the name of this episode is, what's the difference in a millennium and a millipede? So clearly I'm assuming, I'm guessing, okay, that this is about the book. And so let's, uh, let's see what they had to say and how they promoted the book and, Let's see if, if if you if you haven't decided if you want a copy, well, maybe by the time this is over, you will have decided you do or decided you you do not. Here we go. Welcome to Christ in Prophecy. We're delighted to bring you another wonderful book by the founder of Lamb and Lion Ministries, Dr. David Reagan. Dave, we're so glad you could come back and be with us today. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. I nearly fell out of my chair when you were talking about the difference between a centipede and a centurion. <laughs> well, you, uh, you upped the ante and made it a millipede or a millennium, and That's we're so true. glad you did. You know, Dave, you make a comment in your book that after interacting with pastors and churches and even individual Christians for many years, you found a common trait regarding Bible prophecy, or at least the attitude, and you label that characteristic abysmal. What is the state of much of the church regarding God's prophetic Word? Well, I would sum it up with three words, ignorance, apathy, and uh, confusion. And uh... Ignorance, apathy, confusion. Ignorance, apathy, confusion. I want you to think about the lo- the local churches in your area. I want you to think about churches around, well, the United States of America cannot speak for other countries. Don't you think that there is a pandemic, an epidemic, a, a massive problem of ignorance, apathy, and confusion in the church? Do you feel that that is true, that there's ignorance about so many things, theology, church history, 
biblical doctrine, how to understand, interpret, and study the Bible. There's ignorance. There is apathy, though many Christians just, they have more things available to them than at any time in the history of the world, and they just kind of shrug their shoulders and like, I don't care, leave me alone, I'm going to do what I want. There's ignorance, there's apathy, and there is so much confusion Christians can't agree on anything, and there's fighting, and there's arguing, and there's disagreeing, and everyone thinks that they know how to handle the Bible, but clearly they they, they indicate, they, they demonstrate that they do not. Ignorance, apathy, and confusion. I think those are very important words to kind of sum that up. I'm going to back that up just a little bit, because I think that's just a, a good place to, to start back. Here we go regarding Bible prophecy, or at least the attitude, and you label that characteristic abysmal. What is the state of much of the church regarding God's prophetic word? Well, I would sum it up with three words, ignorance, apathy, and uh, confusion. And uh, that's primarily with pastors. But with people in the pew, I would say a lot of it is fear. They don't even want Mm. to talk about Bible prophecy because of, they they think it's all about uh, wrath and tribulation and things of that nature, uh, although many are very curious about it. They'd like to know something about it. But it main, mainly is just ignorance on the part of both pastors and the general public. Well, I found the same thing, but you suggested there is a solution to this malady of ignorance, but it involves an offensive five-letter <laughs> word. Well, that's true. That letter uh, word, word is spelled S-T-U-D-Y, <laughs> a study. It does take some study to get on top of Bible prophecy, and Unfortunately, we're in a time when people want short videos and they want short sermons and they want everything to be, you know, condensed and on and let me move on. And it's not a time of serious study. Mm. Now, if you've been listening to our series on Mark 2.26, we've demonstrated this. It is not a time of serious study because Mark 2.26 contains some serious issues to deal with and we review just three random sermons that we just chose completely at random and not one sermon dealt with one of any of the major issues in Mark 2.26. It just ignored them. In fact, almost purposely led people away from the problems. Pass, look, churches are no longer places of intense study. It's just people want sermons. They don't want to actually study the text. There is apathy in the pew. You can say all day that people are ignorant, that the people in the pew are ignorant of biblical prophecy or ignorant of theology or ignorant of church history. I'm sorry. I, I, I used to blame the church, and I do put the blame at many churches, but the people sitting in the pew have no excuse in 2022. They have no excuse because they have access to everything literally in the palm of their hands on their phone, but they don't use the phone for biblical, you know, study and biblical learning. They use it for everything else. So there is ignorance, but the ignorance is due to apathy and then ignorance and apathy always leads to biblical confusion. We have ignorance, we have apathy, and we have confusion in the pulpit, in the pew, in the Sunday school classroom, all over the place. Dave, uh, you start the book by listing the different viewpoints of the end times. Uh, What are the four main viewpoints concerning the end times? Well, in the book, I talk about uh, the four major viewpoints. I do a little introduction of them, and then I talk about each one in in particular. And those four viewpoints are historic uh, premillennialism, which was the viewpoint of the early church fathers. almost unanimously. And what that meant was it's simply that uh, they believed that Jesus was going to come back and reign for a thousand years over all the earth from Jerusalem. Historic premillennialism. Then the second view that developed was amillennialism. And that's kind of a strange word, amillennial. It's the way you negate something in Greek. You put the A in front of it. So amillennial means no millennium. But what that really means is no literal millennium. They have spiritualized the millennium to say, well, we're living in the millennium now, that Jesus is reigning over the earth from uh, heaven through the church. And the person that developed that was St. Augustine around 400 uh, A.D., and uh, he became the most influential of all the church fathers, had more impact on Catholic doctrine than anybody else. And so the Catholic Church over the years accepted that position, and today uh, that is the predominant position in all of Christianity held by the Catholic Church and by most of your mainline Protestant denominations. They have spiritualized it to mean something other than what it says. 
So we have historical premillennialism, amillennialism. Not here to t- tell you which one to hold to, but you should know as much about either. You should know about all of the ones he's going to lay out. But he's giving you the major ones, historical premillennialism, amillennialism. I think a lot of people are more familiar with amillennialism than historical premillennialism. I think, I think a lot of people who, who, or a lot of people who may reject amillennialism still may not know a lot about uh, historical premillennialism, but you at least need to know the different systems. This book, Right, the difference between the millennium and a millipede will at least give you a basic, basic, ba- and I'm really stressing that basic, basic, basic. I'm stressing that basic overview. Here, here we go. That we are in the millennium now, and it started at the cross, and it will go till the time Jesus returns. And the thousand years simply means a long period of time; it doesn't mean a thousand years. Then, in the 1600s, a Unitarian pastor by the name of Daniel Whitby, a person who didn't even really believe in the deity of Jesus, uh, he developed the concept of post-millennialism, which I consider to be the most un, uh, unbiblical of all the viewpoints. It simply says that things are going to get better and better until finally the church uh, uh, converts the entire world, and then the church will reign over the world for a thousand years, and then Jesus will come back and we'll present the kingdom to Jesus rather than Him presenting it to us. And that's so unbiblical because the, the Bible teaches that the vast majority of humanity will always reject the gospel, will never come to the gospel, and the road to hell is very wide, the road to heaven is very narrow. And then the last... There's post-millennialism, which, yeah, I... I think uh, I have the, probably I don't know I have a I, I have some serious problems with postmillennialism. Let's just state it that way. On understanding the times podcast, they basically said if the church if you go to a church that teaches postmillennialism, you should get out. You should leave. That 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 is that is an absolute. You should not attend a church that's postmillennial. You may agree or disagree. I, I think I think I would I think I would probably say yeah you should leave. Um, I think post-millennialism has some serious issues. I think amillennialism has some serious issues, at least in how it relates to biblical hermeneutics. But all right, here we go. Let's, let's, there's one more. So we got historical premillennialism, amillennialism, and post-millennialism. And you should know what number four is. You should know number four. So the four major viewpoints is what I call modern premillennialism. And it is like historical premillennialism, except that it has a rapture at the beginning of the tribulation. So you have the rapture, the church is taken out, the Antichrist appears, he rules for uh, you know seven years during the tribulation, and then Jesus returns and conquers him and sets up his kingdom for a thousand years. Now, modern premillennialism, I would call that dispensational premillennialism. I think, I think we can call it modern premillennialism, but it's dispensational premillennialism, right? I think, I think, I think that's fair. I think it's fair to refer to it as dispensational premillennialism. I think that's more accurate, but you can call it modern to distinguish, to, to distinguish it from the historical premillennialism. So you got the historical premillennialism premillennialism, which is not the same as dispensational or modern premillennialism, just so that you, you, you understand the, the terminology. So the only difference between historical premillennialism and modern premillennialism is the rapture that is separate and apart from the second coming. So those are the four major. Now, I guess you could do it that way. You could see that the only difference between historical and modern is the rapture. But when you add the dispensational part, then you clearly draw a distinction between Israel and the church. And God is not finished with Israel and national Israel will ultimately be saved. Well, we, we could, we could, so maybe that's why he's not throwing in the dispensational part because he just wants to draw the distinction about the millennium itself between historical and modern premillennialism and, and the modern premillennialism throws in the rapture. So, Maybe he doesn't want to get into the Israel distinction where dispensationalism clearly draws the distinction between the church and Israel. All right, let's continue. Your viewpoints, and then I decided to add another major viewpoint that's not normally considered. In fact, I've never seen a, seen a chapter written on it, mm, yeah. and that's called pan-millennialism. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I think that's really the, the major viewpoint. Held by more than any other view. Even those who claim to be amillennial, if you ask them what that means, they say, well, I don't know. That's what my church says. I, I, I'm just, you know, I just believe it's all going to pan out in the end. Right. I've heard that so much. You know, when I first heard it, I thought it was very funny. 
and then it ceased to be funny, and then it got to be aggravating to the point that every time a pastor would say to me, well, you know, I'm pan-millennial. I believe it will all pan out in the end. I had to bite my tongue because what I wanted to say is you just admitted you're too lazy to study God's Word and find out what it says on the topic. Wow. And that's sad because... Whoa, that, that's a good point. Now, I think he should have thrown in preterism. I think he should have thrown in preterism. So, I think preterism has to be addressed. You, you, you got to talk about preterism. But we talked about that in our study of Matthew 24. You can go listen to that. So, um, but I still think it's a, a book that's valuable because it gives some basic overview. Everyone needs to know preterism because as much as I disagree with, with full pure preterism. I am so grateful for preterism because preterism forces you to ask a very important question. Is it possible that that prophecy has already been fulfilled in history for us? In other words, for us, that that prophecy has already been fulfilled. Now, pure preterism basically says everything was fulfilled in 70 AD, even the second coming of Christ, which I completely disagree with. But I think preterism is a very valuable tool in getting people to go, stop, stop. You keep looking to the future. Maybe that was already fulfilled in the past. Let's look for historical fulfillment first before we look for future. So I, I wish he would have talked about um, preterism, but he did not. However, that pan-millennial thing, I agree with him. The first time I heard it, I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was funny. It's, yeah, it's all going to pan out in the end. But over time, it does become kind of frustrating because I think I think I agree with him. You're, you're basically saying, I'm just too lazy and I don't really care enough to figure this stuff out. Now, I now sometimes I will say, I'm just a pan-millennialist and it's not because I'm too lazy, it's just because you get so frustrated in trying to figure out all the different viewpoints that you almost say it in a joking way. But I can understand that after everyone says it, you're like, hey, hey, stop saying that and figure it out. Stop being lazy. And we I think the church needs to be rebuked and the average Christian needs to be rebuked for us being so lazy and apathetic when it comes to really digging into the Word of God. And many churches, I think, are, are I've said, I, I, it's become a theme over the last probably week or two. Many churches are more interested in delivering sermons that actually distract people from the text than actually studying the text. All right, let, let's, let's see what else he has to say in regards to his book. One-fourth of the Bible is prophetic in nature. And, and you can't just set it on the shelf. I guess they do. But you shouldn't set any of God's Word on the shelf and say you're not going to uh, uh, teach it. And, and it's even more tragic when you consider the fact that the signs of the times have all converged for the first time in all of history, pointing to the fact that we are living on borrowed time and Jesus is about to return. And yet the average guy in the pew doesn't know that because the preacher never preaches it. Absolutely. You know, one of the things you made a good point is people say, well, that historic pre-millennial viewpoint uh, really doesn't have a whole lot of, of discussion uh, amongst the early church fathers. But you said there's a reason for that. They were focused on other doctrinal and foundational issues of the church, and yet they still had an expectation of Jesus coming soon well, because true. they adopted an Aramaic phrase expressing their hope that He that's would. Right. Well, the, the early church fathers did not write a lot about Bible prophecy because that's not what they were focused on. They were focused on major issues like the divinity of Jesus, the triune nature of God, uh, how a church should be organized and how it should relate to other churches, and surviving persecution. Yeah. That's what they were focused on. So they didn't write that much about it, but the ones who did were premillennial in nature. Yes, sir. Well, why do you think... Uh, oh, and one other thing. Sure. You mentioned a word ah. that they use. Yes. yes. We the still word, use it. The word they use is from 1 Corinthians right at the end of it in that in chapter 16, and that is Maranatha, which is an Aramaic expression for, O Lord, come. And they used that for the first 300 years in the church's history. They would, they would greet each other Maranatha. They would say goodbye Maranatha. It was kind of like aloha, you know, it, <laughs> hello and goodbye, and it was expression of how we want the Lord to come, and that just faded over the years. Yes. Well, why do you think an Augustine broke from 300 years of tradition and then started spiritualizing the... I think he said Augustine. It's Augustine. Um, was it, I can't remember what Bible college I was in. Uh, the professor said, Augustine is a city in Florida. Augustine is an early church father. So, uh, not, just I just always remember that. Hey, Augustine, that's a city in Florida. Augustine is, I think, I think that's how he said it, if I remember correctly. But okay, there you go. 
millennium to just mean a general period of time? I would say two major reasons. One is that uh, he was very anti-Semitic. And by the year 400, all the church fathers, without exception, I think, uh, I don't know of any that were not anti-Semitic in nature. Anti-Semitism just took over the church. And they argued that since the Jews had killed Jesus, that they, God has washed his hands of them, has no purpose for them left. And they did not like the idea of premillennialism because it teaches that it's going to be basically a Jewish kingdom where Jesus is reigning from Jerusalem through the Jewish people and the Jewish people will be a blessing to all the world because they will be believers in Yeshua at that time. And they just could not accept that. They said, no, God has no purpose left for the Jews. And then a, a second reason uh, that they did it was because by amillennialism argues that the church is the kingdom. Right. And so it gave more importance to the church and to the Pope, for example, because if the Pope is head of the church, then the, all the nations of the world should submit to the Pope and to the kingdom of God on earth. And so they, they like the idea of elevating the church to the point that it is the kingdom of God, period, and all that ever is going to be of the kingdom of God. That is an interesting uh, concept. And, and just so that you know, Augustine, Augustine, I'm not, I wasn't picking on anyone. Just, I just remembered that from Bible college that Augustine's city in Florida, Augustine's the church father. However, some will tell you that it should be pronounced Augustine. Others will argue it's Augustine. There's entire articles written about how to pronounce it. So that was just more of a joke. But this is serious here. And I, I want you to really consider what they just said that one of the reasons that maybe some of their eschatology went a certain direction was because of their anti-Semitism. They were anti-Semitic. They were almost against the Jews. So you would not hold to any, you would not hold to any eschatology that would somehow say, God is not done with Israel. God's going to do something with it. No, you would say Israel is done away with. The church has replaced Israel. The church is the kingdom. Israel is finished. You would, you would not look to anything that Christ is going to come back and set up a kingdom to fulfill prophecies to Israel. You would say Israel's done away with. Now, one, the nation was gone because of the destruction of it in 70 AD. But if there was an anti-Semitism, I want, I mean, I mean, that, this is a, we'll call this a, a, just a, a theory. Uh, I, they would argue that it's true, but I think it's something to consider. It, just think of it this way. If it's possible, that anti-Semitism, that they had a, a viewpoint that, that that viewpoint ultimately clouded their biblical interpretation. Now, they would not, that would, they would not be the first people that that's happened to. What it would should be a warning sign is where in our minds, what are some things that we hold to that could cloud our interpretation of scripture? Yeah, that's why you've got to be so careful. Whenever you open the Bible, you just got to remember you're bringing a bunch of baggage with you. You're, so in other words, some people open the Bible. If they have anti-Semitism, they're going to read that anti-Semitism into the text in some way, shape or form. It's going to cloud their interpretation. You always got to ask yourself, what am I bringing to the text? And you got to try to stop and go, stop, stop, wait, wait. It's almost like we need TSA security, right? Beep, 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 beep. I'm sorry. You need to empty your pockets. You cannot, you cannot go in further into security. You've got, you've got something you're carrying on you. We almost like when we get ready to do the, uh, Bible study, we need to like, beep, 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 beep. You, you're carrying some stuff into the Bible study. You got to leave that out. You got to leave that out because I mean, that, that's a fascinating part of church history that maybe what led to some of these systems of eschatology was their anti-Semitism. I mean, that, that is at least a, a theory that needs to be discussed and tested. I'm going to back that up a little bit because I, I don't want to just pass that over. I think that's some really, really good stuff here. All right, here we go. Church is the kingdom, right? And so it gave more importance. Are we going to back it up even further? Okay. Because I, I really want us to hear that all again. It's it's worth your it's worth the price of admission. Here we go. Jesus is reigning from Jerusalem through the Jewish people, and the Jewish people will be a blessing to all the world. We're going to go back even further. We're going to I'm going to make sure you get all of this because I think you I, I think you need to hear this today. I, I, I just think you need to hear this today. All right, because I think it's important. and that is Maranatha which is an Aramaic expression for, O Lord, come. 
And they used that for the first 300 years in the church's history. They would, they would greet each other with Maranatha. They would say goodbye, Maranatha. It was kind of like aloha, you know, it was <laughs> hello and goodbye. And it was an expression of how we want the Lord to come. And that just faded over the years. Yes. Well, why do you think an Augustine broke from 300 years of tradition and then started spiritualizing the millennium to just mean a general period of time? I would say two major reasons. One is that uh, he was very anti-Semitic. And by the year 400, all the church fathers, without exception, I think, uh, I don't know of any that were not anti-Semitic in nature. Anti-Semitism just took over the church. And they argued that since the Jews had killed Jesus, that they, God has washed his hands of them, has no purpose for them left. And they did not like the idea of premillennialism because it teaches that it's going to be basically a Jewish kingdom where Jesus is reigning from Jerusalem through the Jewish people and the Jewish people will be a blessing to all the world because they will be believers in Yeshua at that time. And they just could not accept that. They said, no, God has no purpose left for the Jews. And then a, a second reason uh, that they did it was because by amillennialism argues that the church is the kingdom. Right. And so it gave more importance to the church and to the Pope, for example, because if the Pope is head of the church, then the, all the nations of the world should submit to the Pope and to the kingdom of God on earth. And so they, they like the idea of elevating the church to the point that it is the kingdom of God, period, and all that ever is going to be of the kingdom of God. And, and then a third reason that I should mention is that by 400 A.D., a lot of the church fathers had been enamored by spiritualizing Scripture. Yeah. The idea that, well, you know, the, the, the surface, there's a surface meaning, but the real meaning is deep inside. And only we who are church fathers, only we who are really skilled in the Scriptures know what it really means. And so they came up with all kinds of absolutely bizarre interpretations. And incidentally, I, I mentioned some of those in the book. Uh, one of them in particular I won't even mention here, but I, <laughs> you'll find it in the book of how bizarre these interpretations were. And, and what he's referring to there is the widespread use of the allegorical method of interpretation. I'll never forget, I don't even know what night it was. Uh, we did it on a Wednesday night. I brought to the pulpit a commentary. I think it was on something in the Gospel of Matthew from one of the early church fathers. And it was so insane. By the time we finished it, everyone was just like, I don't, like, everyone was so frustrated by the end of it. They were like, I don't ever want, I don't want to ever hear another commentary by a church father ever again. Because it was just so insane. Like, this, they walked two miles. Well, two represents this and this. And walking represents this. And they were on a road. And that represents this. And then this and this. And it was just like, you could just throw anything in there. The allegorical approach definitely is absolutely essential to amillennialism. I, and I know we'll have amillennial people who are listening. I used to be far more in the amillennial camp. But I, I'm telling you that spiritualizing, just it just begins to destroy any meaningful hermeneutic. You can just make it say any, you can just make anything. Israel's not Israel. Judah's not Judah. I mean, I mean, it's just like nothing is what it seems to be. And you can just say what it is. You can, you can look at anything in Isaiah or Ezekiel and go, that's, that's what God's going to do through the church. And you're like, wait a minute, what? Land doesn't mean land. Israel doesn't mean Israel. Jerusalem doesn't mean Jerusalem. And it just goes on and on and on and on. And at some point it begins to destroy everything. So I think it's interesting that they've, they, the early church, a lot of their systems of eschatology was influenced by their anti-Semitism and their, their, they wanting the, well, we'll just go with their anti-Semitism and the allegorical method of biblical hermeneutics, which had a profound impact on those systems of eschatology. And one that show you how frivolous they were in the city of God, which I had never read I'd always quoted it, but I finally read it. You read it. Okay. I'll tell you. Big book. It'll put you to sleep fast. <laughs> uh, Augustine argues against the 1,000 years in Revelation 20 as meaning 1,000 years. And the only explanation he gives is that 1,000 years represents 10 to the third power. Therefore, it is uh, uh, symbolic and not literal. <laughs> Interesting. That's all, only only explanation the man gives. That's his rationale. And, and you have a story you've shared many times with me is that back when you were growing up in your church, oh. your church had adopted amillennialism to the point where they refused to sing a certain hymn 
Because it showed a future kingdom. What hymn was it? Well, that, uh, uh, that, well, anything that mentioned the kingdom in the future. But okay. the prayer, the thing that was absolutely amazing is they told us it was a sin to say the Lord's Prayer. Sin to say a the Lord's Prayer. A sin to say the Lord's Prayer. Because the Lord's Prayer says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. They said the kingdom's already come. So if you pray that, you're praying a prayer that has no meaning whatsoever. And so you shouldn't pray it because the kingdom's already come. The kingdom is the church. That's all the kingdom is. I can't imagine such a lack of faith that you would not even want to point people to the greater (laughs) uh, glory and the hope that we have in Christ's return. But, you know, that attitude is pretty much reflected in a guest preacher I recently heard at an evangelical church who said as a throwaway comment, folks, we're living in the midst of the millennium and the tribulation right now, but I don't have time to explain. And, And he never explained, but another very gifted theologian who was there present, I was speaking to afterwards, and he said, well, that's because that man is an amillennialist. And yet that view was largely discredited, uh, as was post-millennialism in the last century. Well, I say in my book that when people, uh, that Arnold Fruchtenbaum is a Messianic Jew and a great Messianic Jewish scholar. And uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum once said in a lecture I heard of his, when people tell me we're living in the millennium now, I say to them, if we are, then I must be living in the slum portion. Exactly right. (laughs) Well, speaking of, again, another viewpoint that was discredited in the last century, even more so than amillennialism, is post-millennialism. And yet, having fallen into discredit because of the wars of the last century, it seems to be making a resurgence today. Why is that? To explain that. That And it's true. Post-millennialism, I think, started gaining popularity. Amillennial, because there was almost a return to reform theology, which I very much hold to reform theology. I just, I, I have a problem with amillennialism. But when I, because as I was growing in my understanding of reform theology, I, I, I started kind of following the amillennial idea. And I kind of accepted the amillennial idea mainly just because I didn't want to deal with eschatology. I wanted to deal with soteriology and theology proper. And so I was just like, okay, just, I'll kind of go with an amillennial idea. So I kind of started going that direction just because I didn't want to deal with eschatology, which, well, that's, that's, that there was a problem there. But it, amillennialism had kind of a resurgence. It really, I felt it really did. But it is true that I'm feeling that postmillennialism is having a resurgence, which is utterly bizarre to me. The world seems to be utterly falling apart. The church is completely apostate and postmillennialism Seemingly having a resurgence. Now, I, I cannot quantify that or qualify that in any meaningful way. I can't, I can't prove that. But I've seen and heard, cause I listen to a lot of things where there seems to be a lot of people pointing now that there's a resurgence in postmillennialism. You can tell me if you think that is true or not true, but I think something weird is going on there and I can't quite figure that out. I, I have some, some theories, but I won't go into this now because we're already at 42 minutes and I want us to, to finish this review. All right, here we go. People need to know that post-millennialism was developed by uh, this, this fellow Daniel Whitby at a time when people were putting their faith in man rather than in uh, God it, during the, you know, the, the great revolution that occurred in, in thinking and it, where everybody began to think that, well, our real hope is mankind and the leadership of men. So it, it's a very humanistic view. And because it says that the man is going to improve in quality over the years and to the point that the church is going to convert the whole world. And when the church converts the whole world, the church will reign over the world for a thousand years. So they are, believe, they are believers in, uh, in pro, uh, the progression of mankind is going to be better and better, inevitable progression toward betterness, toward uh, uh, being uh, kinder to each other and so forth, which the Bible says in the end times, it's going to be like Noah's day yeah. when people are hating each other, killing each other, immorality everywhere, and yet they argued, no, it's going to get better and better. And to the point that at the end of the 19th century, all of your major denominations were postmillennial, and they were all arguing that 20th century will be the century of the church. In fact, the Disciples of Christ denomination. They changed the name of their of their magazine to the Christian Century because it was going to be the Christian Century and we we're going to go out and we we're going to conquer the world for Christ. Well, World War I and World War II 
just devastated that viewpoint. Sure and it did. died. You, I only know of one major book that was written uh, in the first half of the 20th century advocating post-millennialism. And I wanted to call the author and say, are you living on an island that, that you don't get the news every right. day? But at the end of the 20th century, it started coming back. And postmillennialism is a bad interpretation because it takes two verses out of context, right? Yes, it does. There, there are two verses in particular that uh, it takes out of context. If we go over there to the uh, uh, postmillennial uh, viewpoint, you will see where I write in detail about postmillennialism. And you will see that uh, one of those verses is Acts 3.21. And they usually quote it this way. They say, Jesus must remain in heaven until all things have been restored. Well, that's not what the verse says. The verse says, Jesus will remain in heaven until the time for the restoration of all things. Well, the time for the restoration of all things is the millennial reign. Yes. That's when the Bible says it's going to be restored. And, and then the other one they use is Matthew 24, 14. And they say that it says that the gospel of the kingdom must be preached to the whole world before the end will come. That's what the verse says. And this verse, they say, requires the world to be converted to Christ before He comes. But the verse doesn't say that. It just says we're going to preach the gospel to all the world before Jesus returns. It doesn't say we're going to convert them. Most people. Now, Matthew 24, see, this is why he should have mentioned preterism. Preterism would say, no, Matthew 24, about the gospel being preached into the world, that was the gospel being preached to the world prior to 70, or before 70 AD, coming before 70 AD, and that, that it actually occurred. And we looked at some cross-references where Paul seemed to indicate the gospel's gone into all the world. Paul literally basically says that. So I believe Matthew 24... In fact, I'll find the verse specifically. Matthew 24. We talked about this in our series on Matthew 24. You, you should go back and listen to everything that we spent a long time. Uh, Matthew chapter 24. Let's see. Oh, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Well, that end there in Matthew 24 is a reference to the destruction of the temple and the gospel went into all the world prior to that or at least into the known world at that time because Paul says the gospel has gone into all the world. He literally says that. So, um, yeah, see, that's why you can't ignore the preterist view. The preterist view would at least force you to go, did that already happen prior to 70 AD? So just we got to throw that in there. People will not convert. No, most will not. Most will reject it. And, and in fact, we're in the process of doing that now through the Internet, through satellite TV, satellite radio, everything else. Uh, we are sharing the gospel to the whole world right now. Well, I know that Christians who are dedicated to the primacy of Scripture uh, are sometimes hesitant to embrace something that would be called modern. Me uh, being a conservative, I, I don't like things that are newfangled, <laughs> per se. And so for those of us who stand on Scripture alone, sola scriptura, why do, should we not have an issue with what you have labeled modern premillennialism? Okay, well, a lot of people do. Uh, I would say there are many arguments against the premillennial, uh, I mean, the pre uh, rapture uh, concept. But the main one that people do uh, use is they say, well, it's too new to be true. And they point to, uh, to one person, and, and that's to, uh, what's his name, uh, John uh, Darby, Darby. Uh, in England in the early 1820s. And they say, well, that's where it started. So it's too new to be true. Well, first of all, that's not where it started. In fact, we've had uh, research recently that has shown that, uh, that there were many people who believed in the pre-tribulation rapture before Darby. Yes. And in fact, for 300 years before Darby. And by the time Darby came along, uh, it was a pretty well-established concept among even Congregationalists and others. And, you and let me just make, this is very important when studying church history. Everyone seems to want to like, if I can find out something that a certain view is older than this view, then the older view is automatically correct. Well, if you take that on everything, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You may end up back to becoming a Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox. I don't know if that's always the way to argue. I think it's important to note which view is older. Yes, we want to know that just for historical purposes. But for us, especially non-Catholics, it's not which is older which is biblical, 
which is which is consistent with a grammatical historical hermeneutic. It's not, well, this one, who cares if it was older? The church could have been wrong. It doesn't matter which is older, which one is most biblical. That's the, the issue. But so Christians always get, this one is older. And then they'll quote three articles. And then you go find five articles, go with well, these five articles saying this. No, mine's older. You're older. Okay, just why are you spinning your wheels making it? You're making an argument that older means, ab, that automatically means correct. Doesn't. Cite Lee Brainerd, a friend of ours who found evidence even in the ancient writings. That's right, the in the ancient Father. writings. But the, the, the point about what John Darby did was he systematized it uh, as it had not been systematized before, and he advertised it. At his, I mean, the man preached all over the world about this. And so it became an accepted viewpoint. But uh, the, the reason, of course, there are many good reasons why it was late in development. And one of those reasons is the fact that the Catholic Church uh, simply was amillennial, and that's all they taught, and uh, people accepted that. And the average person in the Middle Ages could not read or write. I mean, very few people could, re- mainly just priests could read and write. And they didn't have Bibles. Nobody had a Bible. You couldn't afford a Bible. And uh, so, what what needed what was needed for for Bible prophecy really to revive was for people to get the Bible in their own languages, and that occurred, and, and also to be able to afford it. So you had the invention of the Gutenberg press, and then along with that came the the uh, uh, revolution led by Martin Luther, which uh, the Reformation, which resulted in the Bible being translated into a native language. And speaking of Martin Luther, the church, the Catholic Church said, "Well, his uh, new idea oh. of faith uh, alone is too new to be true." So, oh yes. yes, that was their major argument against Luther. They said it's too new to be true to talk about salvation by uh, uh, grace through faith. And Martin Luther said, well, all of the church fathers believed. They said, no, there was no church father that believed in that. He said, well, have you read the writings of Peter and Paul and the sayings of Jesus? Exactly. It's all through there. <laughs> well, what, it, it's not a new idea. It's an idea that was rediscovered. Uh-huh. And That's redefined. It, yeah. Well, the early church fathers weren't interested in prophecy. They were interested in doctrine. And they all time. taught eminence. They all, even though they didn't understand it completely, they taught eminence. They taught that that the Lord could come back at any moment. Now, if you start putting all kinds of prophecies in front of that and saying, no, uh, He can't come back for a thousand years, He can't do this, He can't do that, then you're destroying eminence. We, right. the, the Bible teaches that Jesus can return any moment. The only way you can have an imminent return of Jesus is to have a rapture that is separate and apart from the second coming. Because if you put the two together, then you've got to say, no, He can't come until the temple is rebuilt, the Antichrist is rebuilt, uh, and on and on and on. No, it has to be imminent. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I love that you have a chapter on the pan millennial view. I think it's the first book I've ever read that, that has it. And you call it an irresponsible cop-out, and you explain why. But for those who say, well, why study Bible prophecy? Why? How do you answer them? Why is it important? Well, I go into great detail about that in here. In fact, I give ten, ten reasons yes. for the study of Bible prophecy. I won't mention all ten, but I just mentioned that. The quantity of, of, of the Bible, one-fourth of it prophecy, that alone justifies studying Bible prophecy. The uniqueness of it. There is no other book in the world that contains fulfilled prophecies. There's not one in the, in the Quran, not one in the Hindu Vedas, not one in the Book of Mormon. But the Bible contains hundreds of prophecies that are specific, not vague and general nonsense like Nostradamus, but specific prophecies that have already been fulfilled in history. And I'm not just talking about uh, Messianic prophecies. I'm talking about prophecies concerning cities and towns and nations and empires. Isaiah writing about the fact that the Babylonian Empire would be overthrown by the Medes and the Persians before the Babylonian Empire even existed. And it was overthrown by the Medes and Persians. I'm talking about Messianic prophecies like Psalm 22 that says the Messiah will be uh, killed uh, by being crucified, having his hands and his feet pierced. And there was only one way of killing people in Israel at that time, and that was by stoning them to death. And what? guess what? A thousand years later, after that was written, a thousand years before Christ, the only way to execute people in Israel was by stoning them. But the Romans were in charge, and they couldn't stone people. So they had to go to the Romans. The Romans crucified them. It on and on like that. The Bible is just full of fulfilled prophecies that convince me and should convince anyone that it has to be supernatural in origin. It certainly does. Yeah, so. Dave, you mentioned two other end-time viewpoints that are, are 
a little bit uh, out there, one being preterism and the other the so-called pre-wrath view. Yeah. Describe each of those in just a nutshell. Well, preterism is so unorthodox that I wouldn't even consider it, uh, uh, you know, couldn't even be considered mainline Christianity. But it's the... Uh... Now, I will say this. I can understand not liking preterism, but again, I believe that preterism uh, does give the church a very important gift. As much as I reject preterism, I'm so grateful for preterism because it's when I started studying preterism that I was like, wait, 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 wait. Everyone just treats Matthew 24 like it's talking about the future. The context there, it's pointing to 70 AD. And wait a minute, that prophecy, everyone looks to the future. I think that's a reference to this or to that. It, it forced me to, to look at every prophecy in the Bible and at least ask the question, has this already been fulfilled? The, everyone should be grateful to preterism for that focus. Now, I think they go too far and obviously say basically everything in the Bible has been fulfilled, even the second coming, which I completely disagree with. So that does place it almost like, wow, what is that? But there's still good that comes from it because it forces us to look at prophecies and ask, have they already been fulfilled? So I don't know if that means that within the book, they do address preterism. Hopefully they do. Uh, but I, I just, maybe he won't, he won't see the positive that comes from it. Idea that all of the prophecies concerning the end times, all or most all, all, the, the, the extreme preterist says all end time prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD. The moderate preterist says all was fulfilled except for the second coming of Jesus. But your extreme preterists argue that it was all fulfilled and they argue that we are in the eternal state right now and things will just keep on going on Why? and the, the dead will go to heaven and live there. And the rest. But it, it, all of that is based upon the idea that the book of Revelation was written before 90, uh, 470 A.D. Uh, when the temple was destroyed. And they, uh, their main argument for that is they turn over, I think it's Revelation chapter 11, they say, hey, it mentions a temple. And the temple was destroyed, so, you know, what, what's the deal? Well, there's going to be a second temple. Right. Going to, I mean, a third temple. There's going to be a temple that's going to be the temple that's built during the first part of the tribulation and which the Antichrist comes to Jerusalem to dedicate. And so, it's, it's speaking of that temple. But it, it, these guys remind me very much of Paul when he wrote, avoid these two men. And he named two men. And he said, avoid them because they teach that the resurrection has already occurred. Well, these guys have te teach the second coming oh, has already occurred. To analogy. do that, you have to utterly spiritualize everything. And what about the nothing means what it says? What about the pre-wrath guys? Because we're not going to get into as great a detail as no, you did. It's no, fascinating to to read your evidence well, this, against this. This is a very new view. It's uh, growing like wildfire, it uh, and it's it's. Uh, it's the view, uh, they call it the pre-wrath view, and, and that's a very, very bad title for it because the pre-tribulation uh, the, the pre view is a pre-wrath view. Uh, the mid-tribulation view is a pre-wrath view. But what they're arguing is that the, the wrath of God occurs only near the end of the tribulation, that before that, the wrath that occurs is the wrath of man and Satan and not God. And so, therefore, the, tri uh, the rapture is going to occur uh, three-fourths of the way through the tribulation. It's a one-fourth near the end. Okay. Bold uh, judgment. That's yeah. what, and so I call it the, the late tribulation viewpoint. Because if it's pre-trib, it's before. If it's mid-trib, it's the middle. If it's post-trib, it's the end. So you've got to call it the late trib view so that it's, people know when it occurs. It right. occurs late in the tribulation. And these guys, I'm telling you, Trying to figure this out was almost impossible because no one has the same idea. You ask them to draw a chart. Nobody can draw a chart because everybody has a different chart and nobody knows what everybody else is teaching. It is so confused, so convoluted. Uh, but the point of it is that regardless of where you put the rapture near the end of the tribulation, you are destroying eminence because you're saying yes, you there has to be, you know, the first half of the tribulation, there has to be... And in spite of the fact that Jesus is the one that breaks the seals, they claim, well, all that's Satan's wrath. It's not yet God's well, wrath. Well, this viewpoint challenges the sovereignty of God. It challenges the sovereignty of God. It's saying that Satan and man can do things that God has no control over. We know from, from the Bible that God uses bad nations to, you know, penalize and other judge, nations. Yes, He does. Uh, in fact, He used Babylon to penalize Judah. He used Assyria to penalize Israel. Uh, 
he, he, God works through evil, uh, uh, through the, uh, Satan. He can work through evil of all kinds to bring about his will. And to say that these people are operating separate and apart from God's will, that's crazy. And it's a great travesty because it denies the millennial kingdom. Maybe you could tell us, and you made a great argument here, some of the reasons why the millennium is important. I mean, why why do we eject it when it contains so many promises? Well, that's what I end the book with is talking about why it's important to have a millennium. You know, when I I was raised in a millennial church, a church so millennial, if you had any other view, they would disfellowship you formally. So anyway... I, I end by talking about reasons why, uh, when, when I became, when I started studying the Bible, and I could see without any problem whatsoever there's going to be a millennial reign of Jesus, uh, because I believe that if the plain sense makes sense, you shouldn't look for any other sense, you end up go. with nonsense. nonsense. And so, I just believed what it said. And then I thought, well, why? I mean, why would Jesus want to come back to this filthy earth, to this sin-plagued earth? Why would He want to come back and reign? And then I began to see all kinds of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons for a millennium is uh, that God has made a lot of promises He's got to fulfill. He's made promises to the Jewish people that they will have a reign over all this earth, the believing Jewish people, that they will be so highly honored during that reign that if one walks by, a Gentile will grab his robe and say, may we walk with you because we know that God is with you. God's going to turn the world upside down concerning the Jewish people. Uh, it, God has made promises to the nations. He said to the nations, a time's going to come when there's going to be what you have always wanted, peace. We're going to have peace all over the world. Yes. Uh, it, it, he has to have a, a millennium because He has made uh, promises to the church that we're going to reign with the Lord Jesus Christ over all this earth. He makes that promise over and over and over. So those are some of the pro- He's made a promise to creation. He said to creation, I'm going to, re- I'm going to revive the creation. I'm going to remake it so that everything is back the way it originally was and the wolf will dwell with the lamb and and on and on and on. Well Dave, this book was a great blessing to me and I'm already looking forward to your next project and the projects after that the Lord has in store for you and us. But folks, that's all the time we have for today. So on behalf of David Reagan and Nathan Jones, I'm Tim Moore saying look up for our soon returning king is drawing near. Godspeed. Are you mystified by any There you have it. The name of the book is What's the Difference in a Millennium and a Millipede? Understanding End Time Viewpoints by Dr. David R. Reagan from Lamb and Line Ministries. First, if you want more information about this, look up the Understanding the Times podcast, Understanding the Times podcast, and look for the episode for this week where they interview David Reagan about the book. And a lot of what you just heard will be repeated in that interview, and you can listen to it. You can also look for the Christ and Prophecy podcast, and you'll have to go back a couple of episodes, and you can find what we just listened to, what is the difference in a millennium and a millipede, and you can hear what you just heard, and you can subscribe and listen to all of the other uh, episodes. I believe they just dropped another episode while we were broadcasting. Let me see here. Let's go here. No, they have not dropped. Uh, there's, according to this, the next episode is to drop today. Uh, the last episode was on Thursday, Finding Jesus in the Book of Hosea. Then they did an episode on Ezekiel and the Remnant. Then they did one, Finding Jesus in the Book of Daniel, The Blinding of Zedekiah, uh, Mid-Revelation, the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, finding uh, Jesus in the book of Ezekiel, Spirit of Revelation, uh, then finding Jesus in Lamentations, uh, Fireproof uh, Angels. You have to go back to July the 17th to find what's the difference in a millennium, but that's Christ and Prophecy. So subscribe to Understanding the Times podcast, subscribe to Christ and Prophecy podcast, of course, subscribe to Theology Central. I mean, come on, obviously, okay? But... We will end with this, if you would like a copy of the book. What's the difference in a millennium and a millipede? Understanding end-time viewpoints. All you have to do is email me at newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Simply say you would like a copy of the book on the millennium and and the millipede, and I will email you. You will get a link that will take you to Amazon so that you can download a 
digital copy of the book. They do not have any in-print copies. They're, uh, they're, they're sold out on Amazon. So we're going to give away the Kindle version. You say, I don't have a Kindle. You can download the Kindle app for your mobile phone for a tablet, and you can just use that app to read the book. Um, and then hopefully it's only 166 pa- 66 pages, so it won't take you a long time. Or you can put it on your Kindle, whatever works best for you. But we want to give these away. I don't know how many we're going to give away. We'll give away as many as we can. We can't give away hundreds, obviously. But if if all possible, we'll give you – well, put it this way. If you want one, email sooner rather than later, and then you'll be guaranteed to get one. Um, And again, the book is not a massive academic look at every major end-time viewpoint. This is a very simplistic, basic book to give you a basic overview so that you can at least start there. And even and even if you have a, a deeper understanding, just that going back over a simplistic overview just helps keep it fresh in your mind so whenever these issues of end-time viewpoints show up, whether historical premillennialism, millennialism, post-millennialism, dispensational premillennialism or modern premillennialism, the preterist view or the pre are the post pre wrath view. Yeah. Pre wrath view. Whatever view it is, you'll have a basic understanding of it, which can be extremely helpful and beneficial to you. All right. And with all of that, we have to say goodbye because our time is up. We're at an hour and five minutes. It's fast approaching 4 PM. I have to be back uh, standing behind a pulpit in two hours. So um, if you uh, tune in at six, we'll be live streaming and we will be dealing with Mark chapter 2, verse 26. So I hope you join us there. And uh, if you have any questions, email us, newsif at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great rest of your Sunday afternoon and Sunday evening. God bless.